0: This is the Wild Health Podcast. I'm Wendy John. New Zealand is currently undergoing a massive health reform and with a population comparable to, say, Denmark or Scotland, Kiwi health leaders are constantly scanning the global horizon for innovations for better patient outcomes. One such leader is our guest on today's podcast, Dr. Penny Andrew. Although Dr. Andrew says she's keenly watching Australia for lessons on for example, scaling up telehealth, there's also a wealth of learning Australia could take from the work Dr. Andrew is helping create at I3, the Institute of Innovation and Improvement. So with ears wide open, let's hear what she has to share.
1: Andrew Takaunua. My name is Penny Andrew. I am a clinician and I live in Naro, New Zealand. I work in a health organisation called the Whataora Health and I am based in what was once known as a district health board, so a, a hospital system that is responsible for a geographic population and so responsible for health services across that population, both within primary in the community and in the hospital. And you're leading up I3. Tell us about I3. So, I3 stands for our Institute for Innovation and Improvement. It's an innovation and improvement team that sits within this health organization and now we've got two hospitals that we're responsible for. And it came about six years ago. We have a CEO who has a wonderful vision of really how do we actually scale up and accelerate innovation and improvement across an organization and create a scalable and sustainable model. So scale- scale up
0: sustainable innovation across an organisation. See, that is a point that I'm quite fascinated with because Mm -hmm. we need to scale up innovation across Australia right now, and that is in, in terms of digital health and create reform. So I guess one of my first questions for you is, Regardless of what the innovation is, whether it's health tech, whether it's systems, whether it's new scientific research or clinical approach guidelines, how do you identify and mitigate the barriers to change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are really good tools and skills to do that. And that's where you bring innovation and improvement together. So you use some of your improvement skills, knowing how do you do good change management, the psychology of change, there's a whole lot of really good tools and skills to learn there. And then I think the, the key thing is about working with people on the ground where the change is to happen and how you do that through development of relationships and that on the ground support. You can't do this type of work at a remote distance with a centralized team that doesn't actually have relationships with people on the ground where that you want the change to happen. I think that's a part of the
0: problem that we have in Australia, needing federal legislation and state legislation to drive change, but it's Mm -hmm. often people who are working at the front line who are impacted by the change, but they're the ones who often have the best ideas on how to work and how to collaborate across that state-federal boundary. And so incorporating those people in the conversations around what needs to happen must be critical.
1: It is critical and it gets betrayed. trite, but they say that the people who know how things need to change are the people on the ground because they are living and experiencing it every day. You know, really good change management, understanding workflow and how they work, and understanding the psychology, like the, how the team works, and then basically supporting them to come up with the ideas and to sort of identify which of the, the ideas most likely to be successful, and how they test those ideas out, measure whether those ideas are successful, and then that's where you get the the sustainability happening because that's embedded in their workflow within their teams. I know it's trite, but it's, it's really important because the really good ideas are the ones that are growing on the ground. And I get. Guess- that's
0: also incredibly important when you've got a model that might work for one area or one region that could work in another region, but it needs to be really deconstructed and customised for that particular region. You can't just rip up somewhere from one part of the country and apply it to another and expect it to work.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's why you've got to have flexibility and know that things need to be adapted. But I think that's really, really good, it requires really good change management because immediately you go and tell someone you're going to do this, particularly I'm a doctor and we don't like <laughs> being told what to do. So you know, good change management is understanding. And I go on about the psychology change, but it's understanding how this person thinks and then making it their idea and then working with them on how do we make it work work for you. So really, really important that we listen and we help people to affect the change, and we don't impose something on them and take it with them. Like if you're going to do a large scale electronic health record rollout, you know, not so much the system, but how that change is implemented and makes it successful or not.
0: What are some of the key priority areas for you? I know there must be so many, mm-hmm. but if you were to sort of cherry pick some of the really structurally important innovations that need to happen to move healthcare forward? What would you say they are?
1: Yeah. One of the critical things is getting access to data. It's so important for improvement and for innovation. How do you know what to innovate and how to improve? And that needs to be data-driven and evidence-based. So, we still have too much paper and still too much manual data collection here. So, I think a real focus on what data and information do we need and how do we get it electronically. So, we have had a real focus on analytics in our organization. I think it's really important because if you want to do things, people say, oh, we need to do AI and AI is really important. And It's like, great. Well, you need electronic data to do AI because you need big data. And so you really need to focus on how do you go digital because you do need to go digital to get that data. And what data do we need? So how do you prioritize that? The other thing I'm passionate about is why we do what we do is because of our patients and their families. So I think access to information and how we get them uh, access to information and it's usable and user friendly and useful to them and they have a really good experience in terms of access to their their information their data and to applications and tools that really help them navigate our mm. health system and engage with the health system so those are two big things. And I think telehealth is a big thing that's happening here for us. And I know it's happening in Australia. We're watching you. <laughs> We're learning from you. So what is happening? What is, what is the state of telehealth in New Zealand? Yeah, lots of it happening. And one of our big focuses, and I have been just overseas very recently, and we know that across the world with staff shortages in health that we've got to start thinking about how do we use telehealth to take services just beyond our hospitals. So how do you do that with your telehealth platforms and with sort of the different types of, of workforce models and using remote patient monitoring and wearables? And So that's what we're exploring at the moment and that concept of joining up primary and community and hospital care and using telehealth to help scale that up. One of
0: the big challenges that we're discussing currently in Australia is could we transition primary care to being either regionally based where there's better integration between hospitals, primary care, allied health, et cetera, aged care facilities within a region and funding that kind of model mm-hmm. as opposed to federal funding, GPs, state funding, hospitals. Is anything like that happening in your region? You don't have the state-federal divide, do you, that we have?
1: No, no, we don't. We just have the state. For only five million, I think a yeah. comparable sort of way to look at us is it's like a, a small region. Mm. So no, we don't. But we do have a, a challenge between a community primary care system and a hospital system that aren't well integrated. I, I see telehealth as being a really good opportunity to do this, to join them. And how do we get them more integrated? Because, you know, you can see, you can I can see telehealth as being an integrator when you've got a platform and you have, various models of care that are community-based with a combination of hospital community-based care and a whole lot of different health professionals coming together virtually and in person and but help being driven by a, a digital platform that can help enable the patient to navigate the health system because they've got really good access to information that tells them where they need to go and who to connect with. So, And there are some really good examples around this world where this is this is being developed in the UK and the US. And so part of what our team does is we're constantly horizon scanning, we're constantly surveilling what you're doing <laughs> and overseas where they're really good examples happening and what can we learn from them. In January,
0: I'm interviewing Dr. Jen Sondergaard from Denmark. Yeah. So pretty excited to to hear yeah. more about the yeah. Danish model. And that would be
1: something that would be size equitable with New Zealand perhaps. Absolutely. So it has got a very similar patient population size in Scotland. So we would be and quite a comparable I'll health system structure to Scotland to Scots. So, the Scots. yeah. So Denmark and Scotland are comparable and they're, they're two exciting countries in terms of the some of the things they're doing, you know, innovation in health. Scotland has got similar issues or challenges New Zealand has in terms of its geographic spread of its population where telehealth has amazing opportunities to, to explore with telehealth and in, in that type of – so I look forward to that podcast, Wendy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I guess I should extend an invitation. We've
0: also got our Wild Health Summit in Canberra oh, that on is- – May third and May the fourth next year, which we know that Star Wars Day is may the fourth we can 't forget that so and it 's really progressing a lot of the conversation that sounds like you're having with your team and your region mm-hmm. and it occurs to me that New Zealand and Australia aren 't that far away, and that the model that New Zealand might implement could be a really useful team model that we could share or learn from collaboratively as we potentially start doing regional work. We start doing collaborations in regions rather than separate funding models at it-
1: yeah, I think it's lots of opportunities to learn. Absolutely. I think just thinking reflecting on your question around that kind of change and how you drive change and if you've got a, it's, it's coming state or federally and then you need to drive change on the ground. One of the things that we have learned from our work in the I3 is that building capability up on and those skills up on the ground is really important. So you can have a change team come in and you've got to have a vendor come in and try and implement a, a tool and they leave. And I think often that isn't a good model to do. What we've purposefully done and head part of I3 is a program of work around health we call it health leadership. So leadership programs how do we build talent on the ground with skills and we know that from what we've learned from innovation is you need a whole lot of skills. We need data scientists we've got anthropologists helping us with the user experience and change we need designers, we've got engineers so we need a lot of skills and then we've got some bespoke programs so we have a, a program that we're very proud of as, as fellows so we've taken clinicians in, that are looking expanding their careers so they may have a clinical practice but they're also really interested in data science or they're interested in quality improvement they're actually interested leadership. in leadership Leadership. change management. So we have this program where we will work with them and tailor around they may want to continue the, for a year or 12 months can be shorter, can be full time or part time and so they continue to practice but they come and work with the i 3 and work on data science or they work on quality and a quality improvement program, they work in a leadership development program. And now we've got a whole lot of change agents and a network of alumni out there <laughs> in the organization who are your where the change leads. And yeah, I think that's building those types of programs are critical. In-house capability. Yeah, so I talked about this workflow and the informaticians we have, their clinicians, pharmacists, anesthetists that we've got, etc. they have built up their skills and being able to develop systems and develop amazing electronic tools that improves the user experience in terms of clinical workflow.
0: It makes a lot of sense to have people who are leading the change to be already a part of the organization. That you know, if you need clinicians who are already part of the organisation, it could actually be an opportunity for those people to have a bit of a career break from the stresses and strains of being a clinician. Yeah, absolutely. Could be a sabbatical.
1: Yeah, we do have sabbaticals. They come and do sabbaticals with us. We've got one, a lovely, wonderful renal physician at the moment, doing sabbatical in I three, building a significant equity program around patients with chronic renal disease for the health leadership side of it do you outsource them to
0: different training programs development programs coaches or do you have an in-house program that they follow a certain curriculum around health leadership or change management or is it
1: more an on the job learning combination of all that. (laughs) So we will tailor their program to them. They will, for some, want to do some external like They might be doing an MBA. They might be doing a Master's of Health Leadership. They will do that. And then it's always combined with experiential-based learning. So they will lead a program or project and build that at the same time and use the skills that they're learning. And then we have a series of leadership events where we will bring in guest speakers and experts in the field to come and talk for our fellows and our people on sabbaticals.
0: It sounds like a wonderful approach. What are the challenges that you're currently facing?
1: we definitely are really facing as a health system and i know this is an international challenge as workforce workforce challenges in terms of vacancy and people being away sick so that is probably our biggest challenges are in health and that really affects an innovation and improvement team and the resilient not because staff you know health staff are very resilient but just they have been really really working so hard and exhausted during covid and so it's and with now with the vacancies that we have and the the lack of a health workforce that makes it really, really challenging to to you on the the pace that we have with innovation and improvement. So that's probably, I think, as a health system, our biggest challenge. But I think always for everyone, I'd say, I'll well, speak for at least for your budget. You know, having resources to do these things is hard because health is so ex- relatively expensive. It just keeps can eat money. <laughs> so how we get that balance right, we can continue to innovate and. But it, it, you know, I think that's a challenge of innovation and improvement.
0: Now, you have mentioned that you're watching Australia with great interest and always scanning the horizon. If we were to rightly acknowledge the huge amount of innovation that I3 have created in your region, what could we learn from you?
1: I think that within an organisation you do need executive level leadership a visionary leader and a leader that's committed to innovation and improvement and sees its value and its worth I think that the other thing we've learnt is that you absolutely have to invest in people it's not about investing in external vendors but you have to invest in your staff on the ground and that's building these leadership programmes and building the skills in your staff on the ground and supporting them to innovate that's a big commitment that absolutely needs to happen and I think that then you've got to have a real focus on really good data, evidence base, And bringing innovation and improvement together for us is a really good learning. So we used to have a silo, we had an innovation team, we had an improvement team. Bring those two things together and then the magic happens. So we're not just innovating for innovation's sake, but we have a reason, it's to make a meaningful change to a patient in terms of their outcome and their experience. Keeping the patient at the centre of it. Always at the centre,
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Penny Andrew, for joining us in the Wild Health
1: Podcast today. really appreciate your time. We've always got so much to learn, but it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'd be happy to share with anyone. If they want to learn more, That we'd be happy for them to contact and come and visit. <laughs> we welcome you. We're allowed to visit now. Thank you, Wendy. That was Dr. Penny Andrew from
0: I3, the Institute for Innovation and Improvement within New Zealand Health. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Wild Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favorite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at Wendy at MedicalRepublic.com.au.